0: to the Hack Your Mindset podcast with me, Jenny Winterleach, the Mindset Hacker. So wherever you are today and whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this, settle in and enjoy the ride. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another of the Flying Changes Mindset and Performance podcast slash live Q&As. Welcome. Um, I am thrilled this morning to welcome on board Dominic Sewell. Hi, Dominic.
1: Good morning.
0: Um, Dominic gosh we've got a lot of very interesting things to cover that we've I've never covered with anyone before which are things all to do with historic equitation and um, how horses have done so many different things over the centuries not just the years and how you're involved in learning more about that teaching that and um, sharing it with people so tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and historic equitation.
1: Okay, my name is Dominic Sewell. I run a company called Historic Equitation Limited, and we specialize in historical events for the heritage industry. So if you've ever gone along with your family to an English heritage property, or you've visited the Tower of London, or Hampton Court Palace, or you've been somewhere in Europe, you may well have seen some, for example, jousting, or some 17th century classical riding displays. Uh, and it may well have been provided by my company, and horses and the people that work alongside me that in encapsulates it awesome.
0: incredible okay and so that's the bit where people might have seen you doing things which is you know they might see seen displays or watch something at events what's the bit behind the scenes where it all comes from what what else do you do
1: well alongside training uh, and purchasing our own horses what we're doing is using a classical dressage system that is 700 years old Um, people have been writing about equitation uh, the use and riding and application of aids for riding for centuries and although people in the classical world may only be aware of 20th century classical riding books on equitation go as far back as the medieval period uh the greatest one being produced by the king of portugal dom duarte uh in the 1430s uh which is called bem cavalgar or how to ride on every saddle and it's basically a thesis upon jousting and how to be a very good rider um, of the time we can then leap forward into the renaissance uh and with the renaissance we have the arts of printing book so it's more available to more people uh, and we start with frederico grisoni in the 1550s uh, and then into um, France uh, in the beginning uh, uh, of the 17th century with Plouvinel, uh, and then into England uh, with some great writers in Elizabethan time, such as Thomas Beddingfield, Gervais Markham, um, uh, and then to, of course to the greatest of all English writers, William Cavendish, the Duke of Newcastle, who writes his great books, um, New Method of Equitation, um, uh, when he was, uh, in exile uh, in, in France during the Civil War and he comes back and rebuilds his beautiful riding house at Bozova castle um, most people are aware I suppose of the classical riding masters of Francois Guernier, who whose system uh, is really the basis for the Spanish riding school and I think from from there is where classical dressage really um spreads its wings and, and, and comes forward of course then we come to the 20th century where we have uh the beautiful and uh excellent books of Nuno Oliveira uh Oliveira, um from portugal as, as well as many others in between so that's trying what we're encapsulating what we're studying uh, and using techniques um that are, are taught in, in these books that aren't brought out of any particular you're not going to get people using mesers um, or terror and their movements like that um, with these advanced movements we try and train our horses to that level uh, and then display them in some of our events really that's Wow
0: so that is going way beyond me i've learned the scales of training or done my bhs training and and what have you and this is how you ride that this is like not just back to kind of classical principles which for some people is quite a push but way back even to how that stuff developed and um,
1: the 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 roots of dressage go way back into the medieval period Uh, that essentially uh dressage are riding tests and techniques to train your horse for whatever you want it to do, whether that's going to be in warfare or whether you get it um, to move around. But dressage techniques are all about how to get the horse supple and to move quickly. So when are you thinking about counter-pirouettes or demi-pirouettes, half-pirouettes, they're all there to be used, especially in mounting fencing. And now there are loads and lots and lots of mounted fencing manuals from the medieval period, um, especially coming out of uh, Germany, And these depict riders and how to fight on horseback with a sword. So it's all very applicable to uh, the context of uh, the the medieval stuff um, that we produce as entertainment. And, 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 you know, the stories uh, that have been entertainers in films and books for, for hundreds of years.
0: Okay. So um, what is then, here's a question for you. You've named your company after it. Um, We hear it banded around, particularly in a sport that I've just got involved in called working equitation. I -hmm. hear it um, used in side saddle. I do a bit of side saddle when we talk about side saddle equitation classes. Your company is called historical equitation. What is equitation then?
1: For me, (laughs) equitation is the application of riding techniques for the horse's benefit. Um, When when we say that we learn to ride, you are practising equitation it is the use of a horse um, for for man's benefit and it then comes down into many many different types we have the equitation as you said for side saddle we have uh, the working equitation um sport that's come out of um the iberian peninsula um we have historical equitation the study of uh, historic riding manuals then we have fei Eventing, fei dressage british dressage pony club all of this encapsulates equitation riding horses Simply put.
0: Cool. Thank you for clarifying that because it's something I get asked all the time. What is equitation? I'm like, just means riding, but it sounds posh.
1: <laughs> I'm using an email address.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of the things you mentioned before, which I think is fascinating, was Cavendish. Yeah. And this concept of something called a riding house um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that kind of era and these riding houses that came about, and and how that relates to modern modern day?
1: Well, you know, we're all fair weather riders at some point in our lives, uh, and uh, some of us that get to ride indoors, it's it's very it's very nice to be able to ride in whatever whatever weather, and that applies. Whether it we're in the 21st century or whether you're in the 16th and 17th centuries and riding houses came about by people who were interested in architecture architect, architecture sorry and were able to build uh, their own properties would include a riding house where they were training their own horses it, it has to be pointed out that horsemanship is one of the most important um, things that uh, a, a gentleman could do along with learning swordsmanship mathematics a little bit of politics greek and latin to be a true gentleman you must be in control of a horse and there's lots of philosophies around that so when you're building your properties you would include a riding house so you can keep your horses especially a stallions in there and you can ride in whatever weather. And because you're interested in architecture as well as horsemanship, you're gonna make a very pretty building for these uh, horses. Now, the first ones that came to Britain uh, were built by uh, Prince Henry. Uh, Prince Henry was the uh, little known son of James I. Again, himself, not even a well-known king. James I inherited the English throne after Elizabeth. And Henry was kind of like this new young God. who's like a new hope for, uh, for England uh, you know we had this uh, rising tide of um, popularity of, of, the, of the monarchy and our strength as a nation was very strong at that time so our uh, focus on military skills w- w- was quite important and for gentlemen um, developing was very very important so building a riding house building these new fashions that were coming over from the continent um, were quite important so the first ones were built down in Richmond um in greenwich and then uh the duke of northumberland built one funnily enough just down the road from me at castle aspie before the 17th century where william cavendish the future duke of newcastle built one at welbeck abbey where his uh, family seat was and then as he built Bolsover castle in the 1630s he included uh another riding house there which is also included in his book a general system of horsemanship Um, where he is pictured in in the plates in the book, riding his horses at Bolsover Castle. So uh, for us, it's very, very important and very exciting that we have not only the works of the Duke of Newcastle, but pictures of the Dukes of Newcastle riding his horses at Bolsover Castle, which, of course, still exists. The riding house still exists. uh, Displays are still put on there um, on an annual basis. So it's an absolute mecca of horsemanship for anybody who's interested in this type of thing.
0: Wow, fabulous. And when we're allowed out again, that's definitely a place number one on my list to go and visit, to go and find out some more and hopefully see a display or something going on there as well by yourselves. Okay. So that's kind of some of the history of equitation and a lit- just a, like a fraction of, you know, where this has all come from. But tell us a little bit about your history. Where have you come from? How on earth have you ended up? doing what you do today because it's different it's exciting it's you know you're always evolving we'll talk a bit more later on perhaps about how you've had to evolve and change through the pandemic as well but what's been your background how on earth did you get into this yourself
1: well disappointingly um, I didn't ride uh, as a young boy I came to horses very late in my mid-20s uh, by that time I would got into a historical reenactment And, you know, all I wanted to do was run around being a knight in a suit of armour. And I got the suit of armour, so the next logical step was to engage uh, in some riding. At that point, I'd seen some friends of mine dress up as hussars from the Napoleonic area, but nobody was doing late medieval knights in armour, you know, that iconic look. So a group of us got together and formed a little group, uh, and we went off and tried to learn to ride, uh, whilst trying to learn to ride in armour as well, which uh, we found most difficult because horses don't necessarily take kindly to loud noisy bits of metal uh, clanging around on their back but that's how I started you know it, it was a hobby and um, once a month we'd go down to some stables uh, uh, just outside London and hire these film horses uh, and bang around for three or four hours of the weekend trying to learn to ride and, and and at that point I realized that if I wanted to do this to any kind of um success and 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 try and look like i know what i'm doing i need to learn to ride so uh, i gave up my job i went to work for a riding school that had a little racing yard attached and i learned from the bottom upwards and um i had a great basis in in how yards work uh in what not to do and what to do uh and from there i was able to um uh move to um another area of the country buy my fir- first horse with a, a small bequest from my, my grandfather. Thank you, Granddad. And, um, and I think kind of built from there. Um, I was lucky enough to be asked to ru- run a, a livery yard where I was living, and I was able to build up a small stable of horses. And then in 2010, we were able to start the company Historic Equitation where we started to actually um, get some business in putting on historical displays. By then I'd be able to, uh, you know, I've been riding for quite some time and i was able to go forward but i was helped immeasurably at that time by um the barber family in norfolk who are a, a large huge presence in in the english working equitation um scene you know with holly barber being one of the top six riders in the world um but and her mum sue um, was always very encouraging with me she lent me a horse called saracen who was a fantastic horse and uh, and i ended up buying a horse from them from their stallion infinito uh called bento who um i've been jousting on and off um from this day and he's still with me today at the age of 13. so that's kind of it right started. we've expanded that from not just international jousting and you know i've been so lucky to go around the whole world onto every continent being able um to joust internationally uh but then we expanded into the the historical riding areas where we were able to do displays of the duke of newcastle's work or some of the elizabethan um writers work such as thomas beddingfield and grizzoni's work and take that and, and form new shows so um, that's kind of successful but it was um the pandemic that shut, like everybody else has shut us down uh in 2020 and we're just waiting to see how we will recover from that and what we're doing right now is um we re redesignated as a riding school in 20 20- uh, in december 20 and whilst we're open for one month we started putting courses on for reenactors like i was once upon a time uh, and j- even for just normal people who want to enjoy horses and, and come and ride horses uh, of um iberian extraction uh, and, and and get a look of just what historical riding is all about
0: Awesome. Wow. What a journey, what a story. I love hearing where people come from. And it always starts a bit like this. Well, it was a bit of a hobby.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So what has
0: been kind of, COVID aside maybe, what's been your biggest challenge along your journey to get to where you are today?
1: Um, For me, I think it's it's being able to look at myself as a rider and see where my shortcomings have been and be able to, um, you know, Suppress one's ego and go. Well, I don't need to I I don't know how to do that. You know, I've got knowledge gaps in in my learning Yes, you've gone from a uh, To f but you've missed out c and d and it's quite important to understand how to do c and d Although I know you can do f or you think you can do it. Well, you actually need to do c and d So it's about putting in a lot of the basic stuff because I'd although I'd started training my own horses You know, there's always somebody who knows more than you and you can benefit from their experience from and 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 I've been very lucky to be able to go around the world and learn from some great people in 2010 we were jousting in Denmark a colleague of mine Arne Kutz, who is a, a huge force of nature on the continent and we bumped into two guys that have kind of like changed our world and that was um brander who is well known in the classical world but also a gentleman called uh, Wolfgang Krishka who for us is um, a beacon of knowledge uh, in that world and he and his wife christine have built up this fantastic riding school of iberian horses in germany at the castle of buckeberg the town of Buckerberg in germany and he has been an immense fount of knowledge encouragement and inspiration for me alongside uh, a gentleman that people will know in the uk uh, called uh, mr peter madison greenwell who is a well-known classical dressage trainer and a good friend of mine. And he's been a guiding light to this day uh, in what we do. And we still ride together and do events together, but we also train together. And that's um, very important to me. And so so it's those things, I think, that have been quite challenging, as well as raising finance for businesses, which is, quite frankly, very unusual. So when you're doing what I'm doing at jousting, for example, the jousting at the highest level, you have to take a suit of armour, you don't buy these things off the peg, you have to research them, find a, a maker, have them made for you, make sure that they fit you and they are safe to use before you test them. So raising finance for that kind of thing can be quite challenging along with, for example, buying an Iberian horse, that in itself, uh, bringing a horse to England from Spain um, or Portugal um, is, is quite an adventure in itself. And I've been lucky enough to do that several times that So those are some of the challenges, personal uh, and kind of like for the business. Um, some of the ones that um, sometimes you have to sit down and go, where are we gonna go with this? Because I'm not quite sure that um, it's gonna work. But luckily touch wood, a lot of wood, um, we've been successful to this day and we will recover. Um, to be able to go out and do those events again.
0: Okay, cool. So, what, therefore, are some of the assumptions that are made either about the sport? And I know you do various different bits of the sport, there's not just one element to it, but mm-hmm. what are some of the main assumptions that are made about that that you've found along that way?
1: Well, I, I think people, um, when you talk about jousting, a lot of people. Um, don't really understand what it's like. I mean, a lot of people said to me, oh, I'd love to try jousting. And that in itself, that sentence tells me, well, you haven't really understood quite what it's about because if you're going to go and joust, I ride a horse in a suit of armor, that itself is a journey. It's itself then to learn the techniques of how to break a lance on another person. In the competition, we have to remember that true jousting is a martial art and that takes a lot of dedication, just like any riding discipline. Um, and i think people often misunderstand what 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 the uh, the reasons are i don't even take it seriously that this amongst uh, the practitioners it it is taking um to ask any horse to do anything that um it may not want to do you know as i said as i said, uh, said earlier sorry about that my series just kicked in um as i said said earlier asking horses to undertake these things can be quite a challenge
0: yeah and i think we see the spectacle of it if we get to go and watch it live and we say it it looks fantastic and it looks quite simple it looks like they're basically just riding along in a straight line and hitting people doesn't it but Mm -hmm. there must be an awful lot of skill that sits behind that even without the armor element of it
1: well for example what the first thing you have got to do when you're on a tilt rail if you're going to do it correctly you've got to be able to ride in the counter canter um not true cancer you know if you're riding a normal riding school and so we said all oh, right true cancer please um you're going to be riding off the off, off the wall uh with a with a for example a right leg lead um with us we're riding down um for 15th century jousting and here we've got I mean there are so many different types of jousting from different areas that we could be here all morning talking about it but uh, for example going back to my point um Riding in counter counter, uh, you're passing your opponent left to left, the lance goes over the horse's neck. So you're striking left to left because you're all right handed, because as most people were using a weapon in the medieval period, you're right handed. So that's how the sport has evolved. So therefore you have to ride counter counter straight away to be able to have the horse in the correct balance for for what you want to do. You also have to go from a stand, um, transition from halt into canter, and then Go from canter probably into, um, you know, a, a, a really extended canter, so you've got the speed to be able to break the lance as you want it and be able to hold the lance. Um, you want the horse to be running as fairly flat as possible, to be able to use uh, the lance safely and in a technique you know where it will break it. Breaking the lance is what gains you points, points who accrued at the end of the day is who wins the. Wins at the end of the day, so that is the competitive historical jousting. Um, of course, there are many different examples of where we do displays with a lighter lances or things um, uh, displays where we can just show the techniques of how it's how it's used. So you know, it's a it's a complex sport, and, and as you say, but it looks very simple to begin with. But there's a, a lot of detail in there, uh, and a lot of techniques to get right to do it properly
0: and i think that's the beauty of any sport isn't it if we watch any of our masters in any especially in equine sport it just looks like they're not really doing anything it looks really easy it's it's mm-hmm. simple and yet it it's so difficult <laughs> to master i mean we look at classical dressage if we look at some of the absolute masters of it they just they just look like they're sitting there, don't they? You know, they—they. They, it's so refined. It's absolutely mm. beautiful. And I think that's the thing with any of this, isn't it, that we can watch masters of their art doing it and think, oh, I want to go at that. That looks easy. But, but at that moment, we don't know what we don't know. So we have no idea how much complexity there is behind it. Exactly. How do you find that relates into riding generally and the people that you get to teach and work with and do stuff with?
1: Well, I, th- I think that's a hugely important point that you're saying is that we are inspired by these people that make it look effortless. But we all know that uh, most riding um, it actually takes a great deal of knowledge and understanding of a horse. Now we've heard all heard people have bought over horse themselves in the past, you know, you buy a horse, but you just can't ride one side of it because you haven't been given the techniques or you haven't engaged in enough training to, to do that. Um, so I think it's it's very important that while we can be inspired by these great people that we have to go and seek the knowledge uh, and and get trained properly so we can make sure that we are getting what we want out out, out of our sport or our discipline um, and, and, and do it safely uh, to the best of our abilities.
0: And so with that in mind then, how do you go about setting goals or setting you know what it is that you want to achieve either in your riding or your business how do you go about deciding where you want to go and what you want to do well I think
1: there's there's personal goals there's goals for the business there's goals that I set for the people that work with me um well I'm very lucky at the moment that I'm able to attract people like-minded people that want to come and work for the company and so I can set goals in their riding ability and what they can achieve so for example to be able to come and perform in performing the show you know, well, well, you know. Here we go. I'm, I'm very lucky to have a, a very dedicated group of people that work alongside me. Um, for personal goals, I'm always going to be, you know, I'm always running to catch up because you know I, I missed a lot of uh, stuff. I'm constantly at my technique, I'm constantly going back to basics with my horses to try and make sure that the foundations are strong for the stuff that's going on later. Um, for business, as we've said before, it's been a big challenge. So redesignating as a riding school has been, you know, slightly scary because I've never you know, engaged that much in teaching before. Um, turns out I really, really enjoy it, and people, get, you know, I really get buzz off the enthusiasm that people come when they get off. Um, one of the horses and go, oh, that was fantastic. I couldn't believe it. No, because the first time they've ridden a schoolmaster and they've experienced what it feels like to sit when it's doing a PR or uh, a Passage or the, 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 even if if they want to do something, something a little bit elevated, but just getting people to feel what a collected horse is like it, it, is um, it, fantastic because I remember not too long ago when I was first sat on an Iberian and going, wow, this thing like feels like it's gonna explode, but it feels fantastic. Um, and I always try and keep those early memories in mind when when I'm teaching uh, and when I'm setting goals for people. Setting goals for the business, uh, I suppose, is about persuading people how we can benefit from what we do because a lot of our stuff is education on so many different levels. Uh, what I enjoy doing with the company is that we've been able to take jousting into an urban environment you know it's, if we've never been at country shores you'll see us at castles and heritage sites but what I've enjoyed doing is going into city centers uh, and being influenced by some of the things that we've done for example Joust in uh, the city uh, town centres in Denmark, where they, they shut everything down and put on this great medieval display. And we were able to go back into Peterborough in 2015 and do that at their heritage festival, where they shut the place down. We put down a surface, we built a tilt rail, and we jousted in front of Peterborough Cathedral. It was an absolutely astonishing achievement for the council. Uh, And uh, ourselves to do together, but we did that. And unfortunately, we were going to do that in London. Hopefully, this year, but unfortunately, because of COVID, stopped. Because we were going to celebrate the reopening, um, the rebuilding of Smithfield Market, which is um, going to soon be uh, a new museum space for the Museum of London. And uh, if people don't know, Smithfield was traditionally the place where jousts were held in London in the medieval period. And there's lots of exciting stories about some of the jousts that happened there. So um, expanding my business beyond what's expected of it is, is what I find exciting. Taking the events uh, to places where you would not normally expect them to um, is, is quite exciting. But also... Trying to explain to people that we are not just some kind of, um, you know, we're not just a sideshow. That people can see that we're taking our riding and that the training of our horses to a quite a high level. And um, and and that's kind of like what pleases me and how in the platforms like this, I'm very grateful to be able to talk to people about, about what we do, how we do it and the level of riding required to do it.
0: Okay, so <clears throat> loads <clears throat> going on, loads going on loads of incredible opportunities and more to come no doubt we're just kind of sitting in a holding pattern right now it'll happen yes what would you say your three biggest life lessons have been in this journey for want of a better word that you've been on to get to where you are now and and want to go forwards with
1: um learning patience i think um learning patience in in, in whatever you have tried to achieve especially with training horses hugely important um you know when i first started training horses i went through i'll be quick 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 do this do that do that whoa, whoa. they're doing it why can't you do it you know there's a lot i felt a lot of personal pressure and on uh, trying to train it but now through education from other people i've been able to back that off over the years and 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 take the horses pre- learning progression at the same time um that's been important and i've been able to apply that to lots of different things of how um i train my team and how people come and learn to ride here come back that but also feedback from them listening to people learning people's learning styles which are all often quite different some people as you know about learning styles, people some are visual some people are audible um, there's lots of different techniques to actually try and get the best out of a pupil teacher relationship and um and and really just um i suppose for me um the last thing i've learned is just how much i love reading and delving into history and how much information there is there that is still absolutely relevant to present day you know what was being written the century is absolutely relevant to the 21st century and anybody that wants to sit on a horse
0: yeah and i suppose if we think about it although the sport might have changed what people are looking for might have changed the way that we're the the tack and the kit and the you know all the different um well kit really that has changed actually Mm -hmm. horses haven't over those horses are they might look slightly different to how they used to but mostly that's because of training methods and things and breeding but they're essentially the same aren't they
1: yeah i mean the horse hasn't changed um really in well since since We've evolved as human beings. Yes, the sizes have increased, but that's due to the human intervention. Uh, but since the Greeks been riding horses, you know, they started off riding twelve-hand, thirteen-hand horses. Um, but it's it's the human intervention that's created some of the great breeds. You know, the, uh, we bred the great riding horse of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. We um, we invented the thoroughbred horse. We invented breeds like the Neapolitan, which are now extinct and aren't used at all because those horses aren't required for mounted warfare anymore so um yeah i mean but things such as um tack and whatever and things change from discipline to discipline and um it's kind of interesting how that all evolves really of kind of what you need for this and what you need for that and that but but that of course so that's also business driven and we must always be mindful of that that you know breeds of horses um people selling saddles people fitting saddles um, people just selling um, bridle. It, it, it's business driven, but because it's what pe- appeals to people, but also it's what required for certain disciplines. And I think that's all quite important. Really, is is that you know we are part of a, of a global economy uh, and, and business, and it's important to have the right stuff for the right
0: job. So, talking about stuff then and kit. So, obviously, if you're going to be jousting, you've got quite quite serious bits of kit there with you know your armor and your your lances and all that kind of thing what is actually the tack like that you use for jousting what's it similar to is it do you still use his like truly historical stuff or is there a more modern day twist
1: well no we 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 build historical saddles so um just like you have a purpose-built saddle um for a horse you know we will take a mold of a horse's back and there are some very good saddle tree makers um, who um, have evolved to make specifically historic saddles. Um, so, and and they can be created quite easily. They're built from wood. Uh, the pads is normally stuffed with with a uh, wool, just like a normal saddle would do. And a, a normal saddler um, saddle fitter will be able to adjust those pads as they settle down in within the saddle, like you would do with a modern saddle. After six months, you know that you need to either get the uh, the pommel built up, or maybe you need a little bit of padding in the middle just to um flesh it out again so it sits nicely upon the horse's back so within the historical community there are these little industries building historical saddles um to do the job not only to do the job um um for um for the horse's benefit but also um to make sure that that it looks historic and that you are part of a system you know if you're wearing a completely uh, copied 15th century style of armor then you need, want to have a 15th century style of saddle and the bardings and the trappings and the bits and the bridles that all go with it you know it's all very very important um to 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 be able to um make sure that it it looks um, correct but it's also part of a system because the saddle's got to fit the horse the saddle's got to fit the man uh, and the armor in one it all fits into one so like a whole little weapon system going on there so it's quite a complicated system to get right Um, but when it does it can look absolutely spectacular and you can make it as rich and as fine as uh, the paintings or uh, the manuscripts that you model the original stuff off Um, but of course it's it's expensive there's no there's no question
0: yes you can't really go you know online and buy it from your your local tax store can you no, no. so
1: yeah, clearly,
0: sort of <laughs> I think yeah. the the other bit that people love about jousting is the spectacle of it. And, I mean, even just looking behind you in that little bit of a picture, you can see all the banners and the flags mm-hmm. and the bunting. and I don't know all the special names for it from a historical point of view. But one of the gorgeous things I love about, when we, particularly when you watch jousting, when you watch the historical stuff, is the beautiful, um, I don't know what you call it, clothing that the horse is in, you know, the lovely, yeah. I, I don't <laughs> even know what you call them.
1: The blankets that cover the horses uh, are comparisons and are called originally were evolved to, so you could recognize who was who because when you're wearing armor, your face is covered, nobody knows who it is. So you would uh, put, this is the beginnings of heraldry. Uh, and then you would decorate your horse either in your own heraldic comparison or something that was a theme to the event. Many of Joust had themes, you know, they were all um, quite often, um, had a theme about love or uh, an ancient story about greeks or the greeks versus the wild men and capturing romans so lots and lots of characters that came in to, um to make these thematic jousts happen and, and that evolves over time from the early jousts just being a very quite brutal mock battle to something that is very specifically staged, for example, joust of Elizabeth I, and on Ascension Days in England, where people were arriving, uh, uh, jousters appearing from carts pulled by elephants and riding like that, or um, jousts appearing completely bedecked in gilded armor and clothes. You know, just ridiculous amounts of money, it's spending much more money than, for example, Formula One would today. But you know, it was about. Showing off—it was about showing how rich you were, but also along with that, you still had to be able to show that you were still a skillful horseman uh, and jouster, and they showed off how powerful you are. And um, many um riding manuals of the 16th and 17th centuries say, "Well, you know, if you can ride a powerful horse like this—the great horse—then you will be able to command people, and if you can command people, then you can command the country or an empire." No, it was all. A, so horsemanship will always have this very s- symbolic uh, meaning about how you could become um, a more powerful person and advance yourselves. And yeah, but display is very, very important to jousters and uh, people who are in- interested in the historical artifacts uh, as I am, and, and many of my colleagues are, it's, um, it's, it's quite important to get those things right and, and copy these beautiful mm-hmm. things. Because at the end of the day, we are all massive nerds.
0: yeah i'm kind of getting that idea (laughs) but i think it's important you know if if it's whatever's important to you if you want to do something that is historically accurate then you're going to need to know that detail aren't you and there's going to either be someone that knows that that's not or there's going to be the people that don't understand it but just enjoy the spectacle and love to watch it I wouldn't have a clue if something was historically accurate or not but I'd enjoy watching the spectacle a bit but it just depends on who your audience is and why you're doing it and and that side of things so what is it then that really does drive you to do it in a historically accurate way and in a way that's reenactment as opposed to theatre
1: again i think it's about being historically correct as um you know turning out to become a, an historian it's very important for us when we're working for organizations in the heritage industry so who expect a high level of authenticity uh and i say it's, it's that thing that excites us it excites me to go and look in a, a museum and see how armor really was how it was made or the excitement i get when i get get a new book sale on, on horsemanship uh, and start to delve into it and look at look at the pictures it's, it's it's that kind of heightened excitement that we get to make sure things look great you know and and having things correctly made for you is just it, it's just exciting for me and um and you command that alongside what we're doing with the horses and the types of horses we're using um you know very much demands a high level of ability and knowledge to achieve it. So combining the two things um, is is kind of like what we're doing. You know, we're breaking ground that wasn't broken 20 years ago when I first started, you know, we're advancing that. And that might only be very interesting to a small amount of people, but on a larger scale for the displays, you know, after 10 years of running my business and having crowds of five or 6,000 people per day, at shows, I know it's popular to a a wider, interested people who are interested in, in history because frankly if people weren't interested in history they wouldn't be at that particular castle watching that p- particular event so to us we enjoy sharing our knowledge with those people who are genuinely interested in what we're doing and um and that's it's, that's why we are such a small niche part of um the horse industry I suppose, for want of a better word
0: and so <clears throat> I've got so many questions now about the different types of horses and females and all sorts of things. But just really quickly, you talk about um, being historically accurate, rather than just about the spectacle, and that you work with, you know, historic organizations and so that's really important what about do you ever do film work do you ask do you get us to do that and is that something that you would you would ever do because presumably what I know that for film doesn't necessarily have to be historically accurate it just has to work on film or television and you know those of us that know anything about bits and pieces sit there going oh they wouldn't have done that that's not correct you know all that kind of thing and I know like a tiny bit I'll watch Downton Abbey side saddle or something and go oh they wouldn't have been wearing that in those days but you know do you ever get asked to do that sort of thing
1: um film work no film work um there are a number of companies who specifically do film work in in the uk they're large companies that are very very long established have huge amounts of horses and riders on their books uh and i'm always very happy to be another one of those um because when we talk about film and some tv drama um you know you're telling a story things don't need to be historically accurate and quite frankly if you're gonna be the block in the corner going Oh, uh, that's not right. That's not right. This is right. People are going to tell you to, you know, get your coat because really they're just telling a story. The director's not you know interested if they, they didn't have that button in the um, in 1795. It doesn't matter. Um historical documentaries on TV. I do a fair amount of because people are looking for historical knowledge uh and and correct stuff. So I'm I'm quite happy to do that. Film stuff's great, but um, you know, it's I would love to do more, but I'm, I never have the time. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot it of does great take a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, what I'm saying is, what I do to film isn't relevant. I know it's fun, it's not relevant, and I don't get upset about it. It's just yeah. that's what that's what the industry is. So yeah, yeah. Cool.
0: Now, we were asked that by someone watching in, so I thought I'd better ask the question yeah. for
1: you. No, it's um, I turn up, I keep my my mouth shut, and, and do that. So, but, yeah. but often TV comes to us. It comes to the yard because they're interested in, in what we do. So people yep. want to learn about what Henry VIII's doing and uh, the jousting field, then, of course, I'm going to give them uh, what I know.
0: Cool. Okay. So coming back to when you were talking about earlier about the types of horses that you work with and you were talking about the Iberian horses and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, obviously, our modern-day leisure horses are very different to what they would have been back way back when. Um, and even the Iberian horses are slightly different, even in the modern Iberian, to what it would have been back in the day what kind of horses would they have used in in jousting in in the uk for instance back in i don't know whenever
1: first the first thing i need to do is dispel the myth of the shire horse uh this is the first one that get that people assume oh well they're carrying lots of extra armor uh that's a lot of extra weight so they must have only used shire horses which is absolutely um ridiculous that's like uh, lewis hamilton turning up to an f1 Race in a tractor because that's what a Shire horse is. It's a tractor. It's used for pulling the land, pulling harness, and pulling equipment. Um, Iberian horses have been imported into the into uh, England since the 11th century. We've got loads and loads of records for them, and therefore, because um, Iberian horses are much less changed um, over centuries, okay, much recently, they're obviously being bred for sports. horses and dressage fei dressage whatever but generally the old types of the old types of lucitanos the old types of, of cartohano and pres are still there and still being bred you know they are remain, remaining in their sizes the sizes aren't going much above 153 16 hands max we don't find horses any bigger than that mostly in the in, in in the medieval period before the 16th century so that's why we're looking at using those horses of course that means that you also have to have an extra responsibility of learning the skills to ride those types of horses. Um, some heavy horses have been used in modern jousts. Frisians for example are, are quite popular and uh, I for example I do have a, a part bred Lucy of Frisian horse um, who is I think regarded now as a, a new it's a breed called a warlander, there's a warlander world breed stud that's coming out, where people are mixing slightly heavier Frisian horses and um, Iberians, mostly PRE, Iberian crosses, but as I said, there are Lusitana ones as well, which I'm very lucky to have a very good example. So these are the types of horses that we're using. Um, But again, just like any sport, you can use whatever horse is able to to do the job. It doesn't have to be these type of uh, high level horses, um uh, but that is, is is what is the most popular because that's what was used at the time. And certainly in, in Europe, my colleagues in Germany, Lusitano's and uh Spanish horses are hugely popular. That goes to the same people in Scandinavia, uh and of course down in, in down into, in, into France, where again there's always been a strong relationship between the Iberian horses and um riders in France. what we're looking at historically correctly, but it doesn't mean that you can't use any horses um, at all. You can use whatever breed of horse you want, you know, it doesn't really matter. But if you want to be historical, that's what was used.
0: It's really interesting because I would have thought, you know, like being so close to islanders as we are, that the more kind of draft types and things would have been been used because of the proximity, but you're saying actually they would have come over from the continent and, you know, in the pictures, they don't really sort of look like those kind of horses, I suppose back then they, they looked a lot finer but they weren't jousting were they they would just be they were being used for other kinds of riding and things weren't they
1: well you would have many different types of horses um if, if you were a gentleman or a knight you're going to have a quite a few different horses you would have your destria which is your your war horse or your jousting horse which is used for heavy armor could be quite an aggressive stallion your traveling horse would be called a palfrey and that would be a fine light limbs possibly an iberian horse or a, a finer horse that is comfortable to ride over distances um if your wife is with you she could be riding side saddle on an ambling horse now an ambling horse is a horse where the the, the legs are rear leg and the foreleg move together kind of like the tall of the 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 norwegian horses and that is a very comfortable way of getting about um or you'd have a course which is what you'd probably use for for um for hunting and that type of thing so not the kind of horse that um you'd want to damage jumping over hedges and things or going through woodland. Um, you don't want to damage your destrier doing that, so you'd use your courser for that, your porphyry for your fine travelling horse, and ambler possibly when you're moving the whole household somewhere. So there's uh, horses for courses. there's lots of different types. And type rather than breed is more important because um, the breeds and the stud books don't really start to come out until about the late 16th century, where the first ones come out, I think, for the Friegeberg um free bogger horses. So one of the first stud books before we start to get to although the established bloodlines of the Portuguese and Spanish horses are there. The stud books come out I think at the time of about Philip II of Spain in the Elizabethan period. So yeah, but uh, I believe was very much used and uh pointed out in their their build in, in, in many lots and lots of painting.
0: Okay. And so that brings me as well on to another question I've had, which is So you talk about, obviously, it was men that were riding horses. It was men that were going to battle. Therefore, it was men that were jousting and things. And the ladies, if they were going to do anything, it would be, you know, a side. It would be side saddle. It it would be out and about showing in the park or what have you. Or it would be to travel if they weren't in a carriage or something. So um, now, obviously, women ride horses. And there's probably women um, that maybe want to learn to joust. But there's definitely a lot of women doing dressage. In fact, probably more so than men now, actually, if we look at the the statistics. what, what's the difference between classical riding as it was then, which was by men mostly, to how it is now with a female form and a female body and, you know, we're not strong, we're, we're different. And I know it's not about strength, but we have we're biomechanically different bodies as well.
1: Yeah, we we, we definitely are, but uh, but that shouldn't be you know, – what, look, what, what's good in the 21st century is the fact that we are able to bring men and women together in the same environment. And there's not many sports that can actually say that where people – beat at the same level together and yes biochemically uh women are different but that doesn't matter we can design saddles a- around that but the rules don't change and the rules aren't different for men than women uh at the very top level of things and that shouldn't be for jousting you know we we can make uh adaptions for um for body types and sizes but it doesn't mean that we are ruling out uh women being able to play on the same um playing field as um as men and there, there are women jousters and there are some very good uh riders that do joust and um and, and long may it remain that way uh that we are able to combine um what should have been long ago now you know it's a it should be 11 playing field and that should continue
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. I know we've only scratched the surface of your knowledge, clearly.
1: <laughs> um,
0: tell us just a little bit to finish off about how, if someone's interested, they can get in touch or they can get involved or they can come and see when we're allowed out. Hopefully not too soon. I will definitely be coming up to have some schoolmaster lessons on some of your gorgeous Iberian horses. That sounds amazing. Um, but how can we how can we get in contact with you or get involved?
1: Easiest place to reach out is on social media, um, Facebook. Find the Historic Equitation page or my personal page, Dominic Sewell. Uh, we have a website, historicequitation.com, uh, which shows you everything that we do uh, for events, but also a little bit on our little riding school. Um, but, yeah, we, we're personal. If you're interested uh and we will we'll come back to you straight away because um you know we're uh, we're very excited to be able to offer our services um to people who are kind of interested in not just historical riding but all types of equitation you know and you mentioned that you're a side saddle rider as well i'm very interested in side saddle from an historical point of view i've been able to recreate a 16th century side saddle and um that's something i'll be looking forward to showing you uh when you come and visit
0: can't wait as soon as they're letting us out i'm all oh, my diary's already filled my lorry's ready to go it's had it everything really, it needs to have done i am my husband's gonna be like bye because i i've already warned him as soon as we're allowed out it's been lovely spending the last year with you darling i've really appreciated having time together you won't now see me for probably about two years <laughs> i've got so much fun to go and do
1: been, it has been unusual hasn't it that um people like myself possibly like you who often work away from home for extended periods of time have been at home with their couples and their children and uh frankly at parts I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it whether they've thoroughly yeah. enjoyed me being around the whole time i don't know <laughs> but, but yes I'm, the, the fingers and the feet again itchy and uh it'll be nice to get back on the road again and my trips finally got my truck mrt'd and uh yeah, yeah it'd be good to get back on the road because i think that's been a problem for a lot of people is the uh, things like transport covid's held up people are getting mrt's i was very lucky enough to bump into a a famous event the other day who said oh you got a europe a fair bit i said yeah he said well have you got have you got your your ticket for driving horses in europe i was like oh no so um yeah so i've got to go pop over to europe and get my truck get a ticket on my truck to make sure I can transport my horses through Europe. So much to do. So much. Yes, and there's...
0: A lot of Brexit stuff that's now come in, which is going to be a bit of a nightmare, actually, for taking horses this year. There's going to be a lot of documentation and take that needs to be. But that's another discussion for another day. Um, but yeah, yeah, but even yeah. even just within the UK. <laughs> so what are you what's your biggest thing that you are looking forward to this year that you cannot wait that fingers crossed we should be able to do? What are you really looking forward to getting out and back and doing?
1: it? Uh, I, I am really enjoying I think we've got a chance of doing some events in in, in the summer. And I, and I think just getting getting the armor back on and uh, which we've been doing all these you know the nice weekends we've been having and just feeling that excitement again of uh, you know, the lance in your hand and your horse sitting down his bum and jumping down the tilt rally and it's all exciting it just makes it brings it all back what the summers used to be like so that's kind of kind of like where I'm at at the moment it's and definitely looking ahead positive frame of mind. Uh, and just looking to see what we can do in the future but yeah it is it's all about something kind of also i'm just about to deliver a lecture to the English heritage members uh an online event from bowls over castle with a horse display which we we should be doing uh in a couple of weeks time and hopefully we'll be online a little time after that
0: oh great so if anyone wants to get involved in that they need to become a member of English heritage is that right so well
1: hopefully it'll go out to the members first and then um, with the best one in the world, you know, make mm-hmm. that available online so people can understand, so people can, can see it and learn about it. And, and hopefully when people have been listening to this podcast, um, yeah, pop up there because it's, just, mm-hmm. it's a fantastic place. Yeah,
0: definitely. Well, thank you so, so much, Dominic. It's been absolutely fascinating. People have said thank you so much for sharing. It's really interesting and your horses look amazing. Um, so I'm sure lots of people will be in touch about how they can come and get involved and, and learn some more or just watch things and, and, and learn some more about the origins of it. I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm going to go and find some good books now to start having a look into it, especially to help with my working education journey and the, all the learning that I've got to do to get even better at that side of things now as well
1: yeah well i said the portuguese uh, royal school they've got some fantastic clips on youtube uh of if you want to see horses working calmly and quietly but yet beautifully um i think there's one called morning training it's about uh, an hour long just just fantastic really really inspiring for everybody Um uh, cool. but thank you for the opportunity um really enjoyed talking to jenny thank you so much and uh, look forward to seeing you and everybody else soon yeah cool
0: thanks very much bye 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 And I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you want to listen to more of them, then please do follow us in Apple, in Google and on Podbean. Hack Your Mindset with Jenny is the name of this podcast. So please do subscribe, follow us and we look forward to you listening into our next one. Bye, everyone.